Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast examining authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the idea center of the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Christopher Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment. And I'm your co-host, Shanti Kalathal, Senior Director of NED's International Forum for Democratic Studies. In the months since Europe emerged as a hotspot for the COVID-19 pandemic, a seeming paradox has emerged in the way that Beijing is interacting with countries in the region. On the one hand, China has widely publicized shipments of medical supplies and expertise it sent to some of Europe's hardest hit areas as part of a massive public diplomacy blitz. At the same time, PRC diplomats have made ham-fisted statements criticizing how some European governments have handled the crisis, while also amplifying conspiracy theories spread by China state media outlets about the coronavirus's origins. As sharper forms of engagement from Beijing have been brought to light, there's been growing pushback against the Chinese government's approach from some European countries. To provide a broader perspective on Beijing's mask diplomacy and power plays in Europe, we're pleased to welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast Lucrezia Pugetti, an analyst based at the Mercator Institute for China Studies in Berlin, Germany. Lucrezia has been studying China's engagement with Europe, including in her native Italy. Lucrezia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, and thanks for having me. So right at the outset, Lucrezia, maybe you could provide some context on how the Chinese authorities tend to interact with individual EU countries, for example, as well as with some of the key regional institutions there. Sure. I guess we can start by saying that obviously China's favorite way of interacting with European countries is on the bilateral level, because that gives China the upper hand and that way China has much more leverage. In general, I think there are two main issues that we can really see in China's engagement in Europe. One is that China has been generally quite ambivalent uh, about European integration. On one hand, China says that it welcomes a united, stable, open and prosperous European Union and supports the European integration process, while at the same time, China, as I said, prefers to deal with European countries bilaterally and has also set up sub-regional formats like the 17 plus 1 framework for cooperation. And then in general, the Chinese government has been very successful at promoting itself as a source of unlimited economic opportunities, which is something that the Chinese government can really use as leverage in bilateral relations by offering opportunities, but then being able also to leverage the potential for retaliation in uh, European policymakers' mind. And so you alluded to this effort by the Chinese authorities to promote China within the European context. Could you give us a sense of how they do this? I've noticed that they've used their media outlets more assertively. Uh, Yeah, media and in general media cooperation in Europe has been uh, a prominent feature uh, of China's approach to try and get its message across vis-a-vis the European audience. This is something that is not new. But it's become more prominent now as China tries to uh, control the global narrative on coronavirus. There have also been a few very recent examples that might be interesting to look at for this conversation. We've seen uh, the state-owned CITIC acquiring a major stake in the Czech Republic in the media group. Uh, We've seen the Chinese embassy harshly criticizing through an official statement here in Berlin the newspaper Bild 
for an article they had written questioning China's handling of the coronavirus and uh, asking for reparations. And we've also seen the Telegraph in the UK actually dropping uh, China Watch, so the paid supplement produced by China Daily. So this already gives us a sense of the different front on which the Chinese government is active when it comes to media. So investment, paid supplements, which also aim to create financial dependencies in a moment, especially now when newspapers are struggling financially, and also trying to package Chinese propaganda as editorial content. And then there is the public diplomacy issue. So we've seen in general uh, Chinese diplomats across Europe being more assertive, if not aggressive at points, and uh, media agencies have been a main target of these efforts. And right now, during the pandemic, China has also emerged as a major disinformation actor. So not just relying on traditional media to get its message across in Europe, but also relying on social media uh, by spreading disinformation, conspiracy theories, and other kinds of propaganda to mostly promote a benevolent narrative about China, China is a successful model for handling uh, COVID-19 and China is a generous state that comes to the rescue of countries in need. Uh, and then if we look again at uh, the case of Italy, which is quite interesting there, uh, it's really been an interesting case study of China's disinformation activities these days with the use of bots uh, to do exactly what I've just described with a, a lot of positive messaging being spread by unauthentic Twitter accounts. Uh, but also being able to rely, again, on more traditional media cooperation agreements. And this is something that goes back to a few years ago and uh, more specifically also to just last year when Italy signed on to China's Belt and Road Initiative. And uh, during Xi Jinping's visit, Italy actually signed multiple media cooperation agreements. So on one side, on the commercial level, Italy only managed to get about 2.5 billion euros in commercial deals while at the same time other um, agreements, other institutional agreements were signed, for example, those between ANSA, Italy's leading uh, newswire service, and uh, Xinhua, but also RAI, so Italy's national broadcaster and China media group, uh, Il Sole 24 Ore, which is Italy's financial paper, and the China Economic Daily, and different others, like Class Editori, again, with the China media group. So let me um, ask a little bit, maybe following up on what you said about these media tie-ups between Italy and the PRC, which it seems have gone back now a, a few years. Um, if you can talk a little bit about how these types of tie-ups may have been received in Italy over time and maybe more broadly in Europe um, and maybe going beyond just media, but to broader engagement, how have public perceptions in Europe towards China shifted over time, and particularly in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, has there been any shift in perceptions both in Italy and then in Europe more widely? Right. So maybe to do that, we need to go back to when China's engagement with the region started to be more prominent. And that's around 2012, which is when Chinese investment in Europe started to increase, creating then some concerns about state-led investment in strategic industries here in Europe, which is what led to an, a discussion to set up a, a pan-European foreign investment screening framework. So that's when we saw Chinese activities in, uh, in Europe becoming more visible. 
Uh, and in general, the perception has always been one of China as a source of economic opportunity. In general, when we talk about Europe-China relations, the agenda tends to be quite heavy on the economic issues. Uh, then something happened in 2016 that made European governments and the EU itself realize that China's economic leverage could also come with political influence. Uh, in 2016, Hungary and Greece watered down a new statement that was meant to criticize the PRC's behavior in the South China Sea. And we ended up with a statement that didn't mention the PRC at all. Again, the following year in 2017, uh, the EU was unable to voice its criticism of China's human rights record at the UN Human Rights Council because Greece decided not to support that statement. Um, so these examples made governments in Europe realize that there would be also political consequences for closer relations uh, with China. And something that I referred to earlier was how China has been successful at promoting itself as a source of economic opportunities and using that uh, as leverage. And I think this has also given the sense to a lot of governments in Europe that getting closer to China politically would be a way, a key to unlock economic benefits. This is something that I think was in the mind of governments in Central and Eastern Europe, which first joined uh, the, the 17 plus one framework, which is led by China in 2012, and also signed BRIMOUs. And the same rationale was supporting Italy's decision to join Belt and Road last year. And here, I guess, this leads me to the uh, media question. And uh, obviously, media just being one outlet uh, for China to get its messages across, because let's not forget that there are also other ways uh, that the Chinese government is able to use to uh, foster self-censorship here in Europe about certain issues, not just through a diplomatic offensive, so a more assertive diplomatic apparatus here in Europe, but also, for example, by leveraging access to the Chinese market vis-a-vis -vis our own companies. So something that I picked up on recently, an example again from Italy, was that of in a, a Prosecco firm. The business owner had published recently a letter on an Italian newspaper asking for clarity from the Chinese government and uh, putting into question China's handling uh, of the coronavirus. And as a response, Chinese importers blocked its products. So this is just to say that while we are focusing on media, there are obviously other ways uh, that the Chinese government can use to try and get certain topics removed from the public debate uh, on China in our countries. Uh, and uh, looking again at the case of Italy and also then maybe moving on to the, the perception issue, I don't think that these kinds of agreements have received much scrutiny in Italy and elsewhere in Europe, to be honest. If we think about the case also of sister city agreements or Confucius Institutes, so far Sweden has been the only country to cancel all these kinds of partnerships whereas uh, these haven't received the same level of scrutiny in many other European countries. And the same goes for Italy. So I mentioned the case of ANSA, the leading newswire service, uh, in a partnership with Xinhua, which is effectively an agreement to cross-post material produced by Xinhua for coverage of China. And this is transparently communicated. So on ANSA's website, coverage of China done by Xinhua is communicated as ANSA Xinhua, production. At the same time, I think we are overestimating how much people in Europe know about the Chinese Communist Party, 
the way it thinks, it operates, and uh, its propaganda agencies and media and state media agencies. Uh, so I think we shouldn't assume that an Italian reader reading Ansa Sinqua will necessarily be able to understand that that's a product of the Chinese propaganda apparatus. And the same goes for the other media cooperation agreements signed between RAI, the national broadcaster and the China Media Group, but also Class Editori again and China Media Group and other papers, which might as well, as in the case of ANSA, communicate transparently the collaboration and the products of this collaboration. But at the same time, again, I think uh, there needs to be more clarity about the potential for financial dependencies and how these affect content and um, more clarity about who these agencies on the Chinese side that are participating in these collaborations are and what they do. And just to be clear, there's no requirement that these PRC state-owned or state-affiliated media groups be identified as such. Is that right? That there's no link to, to show that they're essentially state media organs? Not from what I see right now. From what I see, it's really just a mentioning of the name. So for example, Xinhua, but without any specification about them being affiliated with the Chinese government. And maybe if I can add one more example that I find relevant for this conversation is also that of the blog of Beppe Grillo, who's the founder of the Five Star Movement, uh, which has been in the headlines over the past few weeks and already last year for its pro-China positions. And coverage of China on Beppe Grillo's blog has changed quite drastically over the past few years. It used to be about pro-Tibet, free Tibet, and in general, supporting freedom, being quite critical um, about China, for example, in the debate about granting China market economy status, these kinds of things. Whereas now the blog of Beppe Grillo has been reposting content produced by the Global Times and specifically actually written by a, an Italian contributor to the Global Times. And these pieces tend to praise the Chinese government, for example, for its policies in Xinjiang and these kinds of things. So that's another example where I think more transparency would be required. So let me bring it back to the question of perceptions again. Do you think that all of these longstanding media types in Italy have influenced the perceptions there of Beijing's mask diplomacy? And of course, Beijing has been quite assertive in promoting the narrative of it being there to help and so on for Italy. What do you see as the linkage between current public perceptions and these longstanding information shaping efforts? Right. So I think in order to do that, we would need large scale polls to really understand the impact, uh, the failures and successes of China's communication campaign, especially now during COVID-19. For now, something that's been quite interesting to watch is also in recent polls, uh, how the Italian public does seem to a degree to be turning more positive about China uh, against the backdrop of rapidly growing Eurosceptic sentiment and also more negative sentiment about the United States. Uh, so, for example, a recent poll, uh, which I should specify, uses a relies on a, a small sample of about Uh, 800 individuals, although it is representative of the Italian society. This found that when Italians were asked which uh, alliances Italy should pursue outside of the European Union, 36% of respondents said China and only 30% said the US. Uh, and in general, European countries like Germany and France are depicted as enemies, whereas China, Russia, 
are seen as friends of Italy right now, according to these polls. And there is a growing distrust towards the European Union itself. Now, I don't necessarily think that this is this all has to do with China's own campaign and mass diplomacy during coronavirus. It also has to do with broader debates uh, about European solidarity, just as we are still discussing which form of support can really exist between European countries to work together during the pandemic. But certainly the fact that China's campaigns have been promoted by our own politicians, I think, has certainly helped in giving China a lot of visibility and certainly much more visibility compared to the one that has been given to European countries, the US and other governments that have come to help. Uh, In general, what I see in Europe, so outside of Italy, is uh, maybe growing scepticism. I think in some other countries, European leaders themselves, from Merkel to Macron, have been more sceptical about China's PR campaign, this mass diplomacy effort, also because in January, when the EU had sent about 50 tons of medical equipment to China, apparently the Chinese government had asked the EU to keep a low profile. So EU leaders have been particularly irritated to then find themselves the targets of China's mass diplomacy and propaganda when the outbreak happened uh, in Europe. And if you look at the United Kingdom, for example, there there have been also calls for a general reassessment of the relationship with China. And more in general, the European debate on China had already become more realistic and realist uh, over the past year. If you think about the strategic outlook that the European Commission published in March 2019 before the last iteration of the EU-China summit, calling China a systemic rival. So going back to the examples I mentioned before about 2016, when China was able to start dividing Europe on certain sensitive issues, I think you know that skepticism has grown along with concern, especially from the business communities for uh, the lack of, uh, well, limited market access to China and other issues in economic relations, which have been all feeding into a more realistic and maybe clear-eyed approach towards China. But at the same time, as I said, in the case of Italy, we shouldn't underestimate the potential for China to be seen more positively, and not just more positively, but for the Chinese government to be seen as the only one that's helping, especially vis-a-vis the more Eurosceptic members of our societies. And Lucrezia, you've laid out in detail the extensive and multidimensional activities that Beijing has undertaken in the media and information space. Could you say a word about what you feel the principal objectives of this effort is? Is it to simply enhance Beijing's image or are there other aspects to this uh, ambition? I think in the short term, the main goal of this effort is to divert European public's attention away from the Chinese government's responsibility for delaying the international response to COVID-19 and effectively allowing it to become a pandemic. In the longer term, I think, uh, especially looking at how the narrative that the Chinese government has been pushing has been changing and evolving, I do see that there is a general interest in showing that the Chinese government and the Chinese model is more successful than liberal democracies, for example, when handling these kinds of health emergencies. And indeed, what we've seen with mass diplomacy is more in general, a big soft power campaign aimed at promoting the Chinese model for handling the health emergency and as a benevolent 
state coming to the rescue of those in need. Then when President Trump in the United States started uh, talking about COVID and then uh, blocked uh, effectively uh, flights from, uh, from Europe to the United States, the Chinese government has also started more prominently to blame the US for COVID. You've seen also conspiracy theories, including contradicting conspiracy theories being publicized by Chinese government officials on their social media accounts. So looking at how China has been also pushing this narrative on trying to put blame on the US, uh, I think there is a general goal of making the Chinese model look better compared to democracies. Before we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to conclude with our final segment called What We're Reading, where we discuss what's at the top of our respective reading lists and might recommend to our listeners. Lucrezia, what are you reading? I have just finished reading a paper that I've really enjoyed, uh, written by Matt Schrader of the GMF Alliance for Securing Democracies. It's titled Friends and Enemies, a Framework for Understanding Chinese Political Interference in Democratic Countries. And uh, I am also really looking forward to reading an upcoming book by Clive Hamilton and Marike Ulberg titled Hidden Hand, Exposing How the Chinese Communist Party is Reshaping the World. Fantastic. And Shanti, what are you reading? Uh, I'm reading a report that was just released by the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission entitled China's Smart Cities Development. So among other interesting observations, it notes that far from being a relatively new initiative, smart cities are actually part of a decades-long pattern of Chinese government programs to digitize and informatize cities to improve China's comprehensive national power and internal strength. Um, I've actually been tracking the PRC's informatization efforts for several years, and this also tracks with my own analysis. Um, The report also notes that Chinese technology companies have been successful in promoting and installing smart city technologies around the world, citing 398 reported instances of 34 different Chinese firms exporting smart cities technologies through involvement in various projects in a total of 106 countries. So it's uh, quite detail-rich, and I'm enjoying diving into it. And for my part, I'm reading really an outstanding article in Foreign Affairs authored by Laura Rosenberger titled China's Coronavirus Information Offensive, which is highly relevant to the discussion we've just had, and gets into detail on how China is using what's now through years of investment, a formidable global media and information infrastructure. China, Rosenberger writes, is experimenting with tactics drawn from Russia's more nihilistic information operation playbook. That strategy aims not so much to promote a particular idea as to sow doubt, dissension, and disarray, including among Americans, in order to undermine public confidence in information and prevent any common understanding of facts from taking hold. And I think what uh, Laura does so well in this article is describe how China has used its very significant investments to adapt to meet the interests and preferences of the authorities in Beijing. That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on the topic we discussed today, we recommend reading Lucrezia Puggetti's essay, China's Growing Political Influence in Italy, a case study of Beijing's influencing tactics in Europe, part of the Henry Jackson Society December 2019 report, The Art of Deceit, How China and Russia Use Sharp Power to Subvert the West. For further analysis of the themes we discussed today and we'll be examining in future podcast episodes, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter. 
where you can find us using the handle at ThinkDemocracy. Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, producer Jessica Ludwig, and our editing and sound engineer, Rochelle Faust. I'm Shanti Kalethal with Christopher Walker and Lucrezia Pagetti. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on Beijing's mask diplomacy and power place in Europe and invite you to tune in again for future Power 3.0 podcasts.